Let's turn to the reading of Scripture now. We'll be reading from John chapter 17 in Jesus' high priestly prayer. As we uh, read this this evening, I want you to be paying a special attention to how Jesus prays for the protection of his people. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying glorify them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be. Lord, as we come to your word, we know that in your word, we have everything that we need for life and godliness. And we know that through your Spirit's work that we will learn what we need to tonight. And we pray that you would do that so that we will be satisfied with your word and nothing else. And that you would use your word to guide us to be more in line with you and with your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you are a faithful God who loves to speak to your people and to do this work in our lives. And we pray that you'd be faithful to your promise to do that tonight. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This evening our sermon comes from 1 Samuel chapter 11. 1 Samuel. We'll be reading the whole chapter together. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, They reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God wrenched upon all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. 
When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal. And there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. For enemies, Saul was publicly chosen by God. But despite God's choice, some in Israel doubted that Saul was actually going to be help. And by extension, they were doubting the God who had chosen him. How is Israel going to be saved from her enemies? Well, in 1 Samuel 11, we get the clear answer to that question. The Lord seems very simple, but it's actually very amazing that the Lord saves his people through the king that the people have asked for, the king that he has chosen, the man Saul. So we see the Lord saving his people through Saul. We'll see three things this evening. We'll see the search for a savior in verses 1 through 4. See the work of the Savior in verses 5 through 11. And finally, we'll see the results of salvation in verses 12 to Philia. This is where we start in our passage, and it's in trouble. This is a very serious situation. Nahash the Ammonite is besieging the city, and it becomes quickly apparent he is not a nice man. The, The men of the city, though, they're ready to surrender. They're even ready to serve Nahash, but then Nahash sets out his terms. Verse 2, on this condition, I'll make a treaty. The the cruelty of Nahash is apparent in what he says. Every man in that city will lose his eye. And this is a very calculated kind of cruelty because Nahash is doing this with the purpose of bringing disgrace to Israel. If Nahash wins... The men of Jabesh Gilead will be a to stop him. Nahash can do whatever he wants, and Israel cannot do anything in response. Nahash is, is extremely confident in his victory. He's so confident that he even allows the elders of Jabesh Gilead to send for help. The elders say, Give us seven days' respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Good practice in war. You don't give the people a a chance to go and ask for help to send messengers away like this. But Nahash is so confident, not only in his own strength, but so confident that no one in Israel will help. He's so confident that no one can save the city. You notice that this word reappears throughout the entire passage. In the beginning here, we see Saul come to save and to promise salvation to Jabesh Gilead. And at the very end, he says that the Lord has worked salvation for this city. Salvation of God's people is what is driving this narrative forward. 
The first seems pretty clear. No one is going to help. Nahash was right. Look at verse 4. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter to the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. The people weep, but they don't do anything. Now, what happens at Gibeah of Saul, it seems to be repeated in town after work of the Savior in verses 5 through 11. Because this is not the end of the story. God has raised Saul up to be the Savior that his people need. We see Saul here coming home from working in the fields and becoming that Savior. God promised Saul in chapter 10, you will save the people of the Lord from the hand of their surrounding enemies. That's one of the... What stands out about this salvation is that Saul saves, but he saves with God's help. God is powerfully involved at every stage of this victory. We see first God's work in helping Saul when we see that Saul saves in the power of the Holy Spirit. If you remember, we saw something similar happen in chapter 10. The Spirit rushed on Saul to equip Saul to be God's chosen king. And here in chapter 11, the Spirit again rushes on Saul to equip him to be Israel's savior. The Spirit has done similar work before in Israel's history. Judges like Othniel, Gideon, and Jephthah, three times in Samson's life, the Bible says that the Spirit of God rushed on Samson. The very same words we see here. The Spirit rushed on Samson, and the Spirit enabled him to do mighty deeds, like defeating the Philistines. So when the Spirit rushes on Saul now, we are meant to expect that God worked to save. God's role in this salvation is important to emphasize at the beginning of Saul's actions because everything else that Saul does in this passage, he does in the power of the Spirit. Notice, for instance, Saul's message to the town of Jabesh-Gilead in verse 9. He says, Thus she shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is... You shall have salvation. Saul is not being overconfident. He is speaking as the Savior who is equipped with God's Spirit. Victory for Israel is certain, not because Israel has more soldiers, not because they have a better plan, or because they have a better king. Victory is certain because God's Spirit is at work. Israel to fight. Look again at verse 7. We see what Saul does first. Saul took a yoke of oxen, he cut them in pieces, he sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. But this is what motivates them. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, anyone to help fight. And here Saul speaks in the power of the Spirit and threatens anyone who does not come to fight. But ultimately, it is not Saul or his spirit-empowered words that ultimately motivate Israel. It's the dread of the Lord. That is what falls upon the people and brings them to battle. So as we see Saul's work, we really, it's like God is putting his stamp of approval on Saul's kingship 
as he works to equip Saul and Israel to fight. As we see the work of Saul as the Savior, we also see encouraging spiritual signs from Saul as the appointed Savior of Israel. Notice Saul's threat again in verse 7. He says, Whoever does not come out after Saul own authority as king. But instead, he's placing himself alongside Samuel as a leader in Israel. Remember the emphasis in earlier chapters on the need to follow God's word by obeying God's prophet. There's been one of the themes running out throughout 1 Samuel, both for the people and especially for King Saul. Now we know looking forward in other chapters, this is going to be an odd beginning. Saul and Samuel are working closely together to lead and save Israel. Another encouraging spiritual sign in the life of Saul is his clear recognition of God's help in the victory. If you look down a little bit further, verse 13, he reminds the people today, Saul has worked salvation? No, the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. We're all his. He takes no credit, but he points the people back to God for the victory. As we read toward the end of this section, especially verses 10 through 11, we see that this was a great victory. Three companies of Israelites attacked the Ammonites in the early morning, right between maybe two and six in the morning, and they didn't stop. It may not sound encouraging to us, but for the people of Israel, it was because their enemies are being defeated. Verse 11, those who survived for the Ammonites were scattered so that no two of them were left together. This is one of the greatest victories in Israel's history. This is one of those victories that the Israelites will be talking about for generations. The Lord has leads us to our third and final point, the results of salvation in verses 12 to 15. The the first result of this amazing salvation is thankfully short-lived. We see what the people want to do now that they've been saved. Verse 12, people said to Samuel, who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But that is not how we are supposed to respond to God's salvation. And Saul himself intervenes with grace and mercy. Saul says, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Notice Saul's reasoning here. Why he says they shouldn't be doing this. The reasoning is the Lord's gracious salvation. This salvation of the Lord. This is a day of thanksgiving and celebration, not a time of settling old scores. The second result of salvation is included in Saul's words in verse 13. We've looked at them briefly before. It's that public recognition of the Lord as the one who has worked salvation. And Saul, not Samuel, remember the backstory of how Saul has been chosen to be king. The people chose a king to replace God. And God, especially in chapter 10, reminded them of the foolishness of what they were doing. You are turning away from me, the Lord who saves you, to find a king. And yet here is Saul, the very king they've chosen, being faithful to He is helping them to recognize their salvation and who it comes from. It comes from their loving, covenant-keeping, faithful God. 
Now, the third result of God's salvation is the renewal of the kingdom. Verses 14 to 15 capture that. Samuel said to the people, Come, let's go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. This is how the people respond to God's salvation by renewing the kingdom. This renewal has a few important parts. First, it may seem obvious, the people made Saul king before the Lord. There was now a formal public recognition of Saul as God's chosen king. But there's a lot more that involves to God. Notice the language again. They made Saul king before the Lord. And they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. The emphasis is that these events took place in God's presence and with God's blessing now. Again, compared to what they've just done in chapter 10, with his blessing. If you think about Gilgal, there's significance to the place as well. When Israel crossed the Jordan River into the Promised Land for the first time, Gilgal was the place that they camped, right? That's where they put up that pyramid of memorial stones to recognize God's power in helping them cross the Jordan. And maybe even more importantly, that circumcision was the sign of God's covenant with his people. So when they come to Gilgal the first time in the book of Joshua, the people were obeying God and he was publicly renewing his covenant with them. Something similar is happening in our passage as Israel comes back to Gilgal in Saul's day. God brings Israel to Gilgal to remind them of their history. History matters. We've seen that in first. God brings Israel back to Gilgal at this crucial moment in their history to remind them of his covenant with them and their responsibility to him. And that's what we see here as they come into his presence to, to dedicate the king and especially to worship him. And as Israel gathers at Gilgal and saw the king. 1 Samuel 11 is maybe the high point of the beginning of Samuel. Because this is the time that even despite Israel's sin, God is abundantly blessing them and things are going really well. God's chosen king is leading them well. We already know that his prophet will be doing that, but especially Saul and led by the king. Life is good. But again, as we've seen in 1 Samuel, it's not good for long. Sin is going to creep in again through God's chosen king, Saul. But I want to ask a question. Where is Jesus here? In 1 Samuel 11, where's the gospel? In God would use a king to save Israel. This is the high point. This is when life is good, when the people and the leaders are following God and he is saving them through his king. And that is exactly what we find in our king, Jesus Christ. Think about this way. Saul and the victory at Jabesh Gilead really point forward to Jesus' victory at the cross and his ongoing, protect, empowered king. As we've seen before, all of Jesus' work is done in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. We've seen it in Mark. It's in all the other Gospels as well. Remember his baptism. He's not just baptized with water. He is baptized with the Holy Spirit so that he can be the king. And unlike good news for us, 
That is such good news because the need for salvation is even greater than what the men of Jabesh Gilead realized. The Lord saves us from all of our enemies and especially from our own sin and from Satan. And he does it through the work of his son, our King, Jesus Christ. And our King can promise to save the lost. That's his mission. And his mission is in line with the plan of salvation that the Father and he, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in eternity past laid out that he would come, be sent to save a people. But notice there's a difference here also because when Jesus came to sin in our place, he looked like the weakest king possible as he hung on the cross. He was even placed under the power of death for three long days. But in his death and in his resurrection, he showed his strength as our king because he defeated our enemies and he brought us back to be his redeemed people. That's the good news of the gospel. And part of that, you know, Nahash the Ammonite, he might be long gone, but the world The flesh and the devil are still here, and they are seeking to destroy us as the church. There are constant threats to the church. There's persecution. There's false gospels, internal divisions. There are issues with sin. So many more are enemies that his church will persevere because he will protect it. When Jesus promises in the book of Matthew that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not be able to overcome it, don't think that means that he's going to build it and then just walk away. No, Jesus builds and defends. We see that. We sang earlier from, the, from Psalm 46. It's what it's to her. She shall not be moved. That's the reality of our life as the church, that we have God's powerful protection at every moment in Jesus Christ. And we need that. We at PRPC need Jesus' protection. As you think of praying for the church, we pray for so many things. We pray for growth, you know, both in numbers and in spiritual ways. We pray for fighting. I want us to take encouragement from what Martin Luther says so well in A Mighty Fortress is Our God. It's a famous hymn. It's taken from that same psalm I just mentioned, Psalm 46. I know we know these words, but listen to them again. Listen to the confidence that Luther prays with. Did we in our own striving confide, our striving would be losing. Were not the right Lord Sabaoth his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Listen to this next part. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. Packed into those two verses. The confidence that Luther expresses there is the confidence that we have as well. Christ Jesus is on our side, and he will win. No enemy will ultimately be able to stand before Christ, his spirit, his word, and his church. For Christ's protection of the OPC and pray for Christ's protection of all of his church around the world. We know that it's easy to be discouraged as we look at our enemies. 
It's easy to be discouraged, but don't be discouraged. Look to Christ instead of looking at the problems and the enemies. And one of the great hopes of this passage, one of the great gospel truths that we see to do as well, that's what we're doing now as we come to worship him. But, oh, this is the best part. We get to look forward to the day when we will be able to gather together with Christ and all of his people to celebrate the results of his salvation in heaven forever. God will win. He will protect us. And he will bring all of his people to a place where there are no and his blessing. That is the promise we find in the gospel, the promise we even find here in 1 Samuel 11. Amen. Let's look forward to that day together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the encouragement that you give us in your word, even as we see you being faithful in the time of Saul and Samuel to save your people, to protect them. We have that same much to save us and so much to protect us, and you won't leave us alone. You're always going to be there for us, and you will protect us as a church. You will protect our denomination and the church around the world. Lord, give us that great confidence to pray that way, to live that way, to be bold in our witness, to be bold in our worship, to be bold in our life, knowing that you will triumph through us. Lord, we thank you for that loving, powerful plan, and we do our enemies, and we will be with you in perfect peace and blessing forever. We pray that you would encourage us to look forward to that day, especially in times of trial and in difficulty in the church. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.